Turn with me then to our text this morning, which comes from 1 Thessalonians. We're beginning a new chapter, looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. So 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Hear with me then the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Thus far as the ring of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning, as I stand before you, I must admit I feel a little bad. I feel a little bad. And I feel a little bad because as I've looked over uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 that we that we covered the last two weeks, and as I look over chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, concerning the day of the Lord, I've come to a realization. I've come to a realization. That realization is this, that as someone who holds to an amillennial view of eschatology and who teaches that view to you, I've come to the realization that it's pretty boring. It's a pretty boring view. It simply says this, it says that we live in the millennial kingdom now. Right? We live in the millennium now. Right? It was inaugurated in the coming of Christ in His first advent. It will be finished at the second coming of Christ when He descends from heaven once more. Right? The first resurrection occurs when believers trust in Christ. It is a spiritual resurrection from death to life. The second resurrection is when Christ returns and we are all raised bodily to be with the Lord. After that, there is a general judgment. Believers and unbelievers alike. And then, as Peter tells us, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve. And then new heavens and new earth. That's it. That's all in a nutshell. And so I feel bad because if anyone was coming or if anyone's going to be listening to this later desiring for more excitement when it comes to the end times, you're not going to get that here. You're not going to get that here. You're not going to have me up here with a, with a Sharpie trying to convince you through math equations the day and the time of our Lord's return. And yet, brothers and sisters, what's sad is that people actually do this. Right? It's really outrageous some of the things that people come up with when it comes to the return of our Lord. And so it's been a while since I looked at this, so I went, I went looking. I went looking a little while. And I, I found this one prognosticator of, who predicts Christ's return. And a couple of years ago, he said, you can know for sure that, that Christ is returning soon because of this. He says, because artificial intelligence is soon going to take over the world. He says, also, you can know that the end of the world is coming because nations like Iran and Pakistan and India have nuclear capabilities. These are all signs that the world's coming to an end real soon. And I said to myself, really? Really? Is this the case? 
When Paul was writing to the saints, he was describing Iran bombing us with nukes. Or when John is writing the book of Revelation, he's describing artificial intelligence destroying human civilization, is he? No. That is not what's going on. And yet people come up with the most crazy and outrageous stuff, but boy is it fun, isn't it? If, if you sat before me today and I said, brothers and sisters, I'm going to unlock for you the mystery of the end of the world. And I'm going to take you through Daniel and Revelation. And I'm going to show you here, oh, this is talking about Iran. This is talking about artificial intelligence here. Right? You'd be on the edge of your seat. This would be good stuff. Right? It'd be exciting. Not boring like the stuff I'm teaching. But I'd be wasting your time. I'd be wasting my own time. And yet, how often is it that people are predicting the return of our Lord? Right? So many times that I've lost count. And yet, what's even more unbelievable is that it's the same people doing it over and over again. It's not like they predicted it once, they got it wrong, and they said, all right, I'm done with the prediction business. No. It's the same people who are predicting again and again and again. And every time they're wrong, there's some excuse for why they're wrong. I got this date wrong. Or it was, it was this number that I mixed up, and so now this is the real time that our Lord is coming. Right? It's always some excuse, and it's sad. And so this brings me to a little more web searching than I go and do. Right? To find out who's, who's really like the, the, the most bad out of all these people in predicting Christ's return. And it looked like the Jehovah Witnesses showed complete ineptitude for predicting our Lord's return. I found somewhere that they predicted the return of Christ in the end of the world in 1874, 1878, 1881, 1910, 1914, 1918, 1925, 1975, and 1984. And it seems like they've finally given up after nine times. But they're not the only ones, are they? We can go on listing people that we probably know Books that you would find in Christian bookstores today predicting this stuff. And so, upon hearing this, as you sit there, don't you ask yourself, what makes people so enamored with the return of Christ that they feel like they have to decipher His time and date when He returns, even when we're told no one will know when He returns? And as I sat back, preparing for today. And I thought about this. What makes people so enamored with predicting our Lord's arrival? And I said, at the core, it must come down to the sin of pride. I think that's what it is, the sin of pride. Thinking back to what is our natural response anytime someone tells us that we cannot do something or that we cannot have something. What's our natural inclination? It's to prove them wrong or to obtain the thing they said we cannot have, isn't it? All we have to do is think back to our first parents, don't we? Adam and Eve in the garden. What does our Lord say? I give you every tree of the garden. They had their pick of anything. There is one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you cannot have. And what did it do? It made them want it. They were curious about it. 
They wanted to have the one thing God told them they could not have. And what always results? Calamity? Punishment? I mean, look, Adam and Eve plunged the whole of humanity, the whole human race, into sin and into death. But we can also think of examples more close to home. Think about when our our children were younger, maybe two, three-ish. You know, mom and dad have the, have the cookie jar on the countertop. And, uh, you say, I want a cookie. And mom and dad say, well, no, not now, not till after you eat lunch. And you, you push the cookie jar to the, to the back of the counter. And you walk away to do something. You come back a minute or two later. And what always happens? They've somehow finagled their way up the cabinets, their bellies on the countertop, their feet are dangling off as they're trying to grab the cookie. It's a sin of pride that makes us go beyond what we are told that we can have. And brothers and sisters, it is no different as we discuss the return of our Lord. And yet, it is so unfortunate when you read or you hear about these stories and about these people who follow after these false prophets. And that is what they are, false prophets. Right? We are told in Scripture, false prophets are those who predict something and it does not come to pass. They are false prophets. And yet, people fall hook, line, and sinker for these false prophecies. So much so that they'll sell all that they have. Give up their homes. Empty bank accounts. And then as the prophecy fails, as the time passes, they're left with nothing. And they have to fend for themselves and for their family. And we, when this comes and goes, as we sit in our homes, we probably are thinking to ourselves or saying to our spouse, how foolish are these people? How foolish are they? And yet, brothers and sisters, as we say that about them, we must acknowledge our own propensity for the sin of pride. Our own propensity to go beyond what God has told us that we can have or do. Our own propensity to think that we know better. And so what that means, brothers and sisters, is that we must humble ourselves before the authority of God in all circumstances, in all, every way, whether that's in action or in thought. And this means, brothers and sisters, something that the world hates. It means that we must begin to think less of ourselves and to think more about our Father who is in heaven. When we think less about ourselves and more of Him, then we humble ourselves before His authority. Then we are less apt to go after those things we think we ought to have even when He tells us that they are not for us to know. And still, still these questions remain even amongst the saints. Acts chapter 1 verse 7, what happens before our Lord's ascension? What do the, what do the disciples say to Him? They say, tell us. When, is, when are you going to restore the kingdom? And what is Jesus' response to His disciples? He says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. It's not for anyone to know. 
And believe me, if Jesus' most trusted disciples, those who Jesus knew were going to suffer and die for him, to be martyred for him, were not to know his time when he was going to come, you can be certain that none of us are to know when our Lord will return. And yet, this question still comes up. For this is the question that Paul today in our text addresses. And he brings it up, not because it was a non-issue, but he brings it up because this question had arisen amongst the saints. But what's Paul's response to the saints? He doesn't jump down their throat. He doesn't get upset. But instead he reassures them of what they already know. He says, brothers and sisters, what you have been taught, what you know is true, is the true Word of God. You already know this. I don't have to remind you again. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived by your unbelief in thinking something other than what you've been told. Don't be deceived by those who are around you telling you Christ is not going to return. And remember, this comes, this confusion comes right after the last confusion that we just went over. And if Christ returns, will the saints be, what will happen to the saints who have died? Right? And what does Paul tell them? What does Paul say? They were uninformed and so he sought to uh, inform them of their lack of understanding, telling them that all saints will be with the Lord when He returns. And then he went on to motivate them to holiness, to encourage them to holiness as they await the arrival of our Lord. And today is no different. Today is no different. Paul's aim here is no different in chapter 5 than it was in chapter 4. But we shouldn't be surprised for Paul's already told us This is his aim in his teaching. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1. What does Paul say? Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You see, Paul's aim from the very start is that his instruction to the saints will motivate them in order to live in godliness. He wants to provide them understanding so then understanding leads to holiness and living. And so this should be our purpose and our aim too as we gather here today. When we wake up in the morning and we get dressed and we come here, it's not just to punch the ticket and then go home. Our aim when we come here to gather to worship our Lord should be that we walk out of here more sanctified than when we walked in. That should be our aim, brothers and sisters, when we gather. And that as we have been sanctified by His Word, that it would cause us to live out what we have learned in our life. Not just lay idle in our minds. And so keep this in mind as we go through this text this morning. And so this morning we have, as usual, three points. As we discuss the the day of the Lord and its timing with respect to the unbeliever. And so the first point is that the day of the Lord will be unexpected. It will be unexpected. Point two is the day of the Lord will be misunderstood. Misunderstood. And the third point is that the day of the Lord will be final. So it will be unexpected. It will be misunderstood. And it will be final. And so for our first point, that the day of the Lord will be unexpected. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 once more. 
as Paul says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now what's interesting about this is I have saw fit at the appropriate times to differentiate for us different uh, eschatological views. Um, we see something interesting here as we read even this first verse. And that is usually we are told that when our Lord will return, the church will not be here. The church will be raptured in the air. You see, but what Paul writes to the saints and what the saints understand is completely different from what American evangelicalism has led us to believe over the last 100 years. Because we have to ask ourselves this question as we read verse 1. Why is this an issue? Why would this be a question the saints have if they did not think that they would be here when our Lord returned? Why would they ask this question? It wouldn't matter to them. It would be of no concern for them. That's like me being preoccupied with what's going to happen in the year 2099. I'm not, because I won't be here. At least I don't think so. You're not. It won't concern you. And so it only makes sense to see that the saints thought themselves to still be on earth when our Lord returns on the day of judgment. They're not going to be raptured in the sky. Paul believes this as well. Because in our text today, he describes how unexpected the Lord's coming will be for the unbeliever, how a surprise it will be for them. But as we will see in the following weeks, Paul says to the saints, it won't be so for you. And why won't it be so? Does he say it won't be so because you'll be in heaven with me already raptured? No, that's not what he says. Paul says it won't be so because you are the saints. You are believers. You are those who have been united to Christ. And so when Christ returns, you have not been predestined to wrath, but to glory, to salvation. So he tells them, don't slumber. Be watchful. Be ready for what? Be ready for the day of the Lord. Be ready when He comes to judge all people, believers and unbelievers alike. And then Paul goes on to highlight the difference between the unbeliever and the believer when it comes to our Lord's return, and that is one of preparation. The believer will be prepared as the unbeliever is going to be unprepared. Because as Paul says, the day of the Lord for the unbeliever will come as a thief in the night. And So think about that. How does that apply to our Lord's return? Uh, They will come as a thief in the night. Well, what's the purpose of a, of a thief as he attempts to burglarize someone's home. Right? What's, the, what's his purpose? What's his goal? What's his aim? He wants to be as quiet and quick as possible. Right? He wants to be sudden. He wants to surprise you. He wants to catch you off guard. And so Paul likens Christ's return by way of analogy of the thief who likewise catches you when you least expect it. Paul also provides one other analogy in verse 3 saying that sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Now, I or no man here knows what it is to have labor pains. But I think we all can still get the analogy. Right? As 
as uh, husbands here, as our, our wives were about to give birth, as they were as they were nearing the time to give birth, we could be sitting at the kitchen table talking. And out of nowhere, they would grimace and grab their stomach and make a noise. Right? Or if we were maybe sleeping in bed, they would wake us out of bed, maybe smack us as they it was a loud shout. But it's a loud shout because they felt such strong pain. But yet it was unexpected. It, it came out of nowhere. One minute they were fine and talking and sleeping. The next minute they were in excruciating pain. It was unexpected. This is what Paul tells us. Christ's return for the ungodly will be. They will not expect it. It will be swift. And they won't expect it because they have no spiritual discernment. They're oblivious to the times. Any knowledge that they do have of Christ, any knowledge that they do have of God, any knowledge they do have about what may happen at the end, they try to suppress. They push it back and push it back because it, it is for them, it arouses no happy feelings. It arouses nothing good for them and so they want nothing more than to forget about it. But although Christ's return will be a surprise for the ungodly, So often the question posed to the Christian is this. Do you believe that Christ's return will be unexpected? That it can happen at any moment, in any second? And the answer is, it's not as clear as a yes and no. It's not as clear as a yes and no. It takes a little little describing, a little explaining. Because there's an inner tension within Scripture. We have an inner tension where we see there's some verses that speak to Christ's return seeming like it's going to be further in the future. And yet there are also those, those passages, those texts that speak to it as if it could happen at any moment. There's this tension between the already and the not yet. And so if you... Force me right now if all of you got up and said, Noah, you must tell us right now, can Christ return a second from now? I would have to answer no. I would have to answer no. And that is something that I think Paul himself answered for us in Second Thessalonians as he reaffirms to the saints what he has already taught them. Look to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-4 through four with me. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4. And hear what Paul says here to the saints. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And so I say no. Because that something that must come before Christ returns is the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness must be revealed 
before Christ comes. He precedes our Lord's return. Now I'll say for you who the man of lawlessness is in and if we get to it uh, in the near future as we delve into Second Thessalonians. But regardless, the man of lawlessness must first come, Paul says. So if you don't believe that the man of lawlessness has already come, well, then the Lord can't return at any moment. And so no, Christ's return is not so imminent that it can return, that he can return at any moment. And yet other texts, like I said, speak of it as if it can come blink of an eye. Right now. This is what we get in Matthew's gospel, don't we? Matthew chapter 24 verse 27. As Matthew records our Lord saying this, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now we've all driven in rainstorms, haven't we? Driving, 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 all of a sudden, boom! A bolt of lightning. You can't predict when it's coming. It comes out of nowhere. Abruptly, fast, unexpected. Imminent. Here's where we have imminence. And so we see, here's that tension. And so I would say to you, brothers and sisters, no, Christ can't return at any moment. But His return certainly can be imminent and quick and sudden, yet only after certain things first happen. That being the the man of lawlessness must first be revealed. But the matter of fact is this, that for the believer, whether Christ can return now or if He returns a hundred years from now, it should not matter to you. It shouldn't matter. Should anything in your life change, whether Christ could come a second from now or a hundred years from now? And the answer is no. Nothing in your life ought to change. Because our response is to always be the same. And that is a response of preparation. We are to be prepared no matter when He comes. And if it's not in a second, then we are to continue preparing ourselves. And if it's not in a hundred years, we are to continue to prepare ourselves until that day. As every believing person who lives now, every believing person who has lived, and every believing person who will live has been called to do this very same thing. We've been called to the very same thing. And it goes back to the very beginning of what Paul has already told us, of what his aim and purpose is. Paul wants us to be growing in grace and in purity and in holiness. He wants us to be growing in conformity to the image of Christ until Christ returns, whenever that will be, whether a second from now or a thousand years. Paul is calling all of us. He's saying, Christian, if you are a Christian, your calling is sanctification. Sanctification. Paul wants us to be growing in sanctification. And so, as we sit here today, we ought to be asking ourselves, instead of worrying about when Christ returns, am I growing more and more like Christ each day? Am I growing more like Christ as I leave here today and go about my life? Am I growing more and more like Christ each day as I sit at home and read the Scriptures? As I learn what His will for me is in my life? This is what ought to concern you, brothers and sisters. Not whether He returns now or later. 
That is of little importance. But we, we know for certain He will return. That is what is important. And yet, for the unbeliever, although the day of the Lord will be unexpected, Paul says it will also be something else. Not only will it be unexpected, but he tells us something else about the nature of our Lord's return. And he says in verse 3 of chapter 5, While people are saying there is peace and security, the sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. You see here, Paul tells us that the day of the Lord is a day that will be misunderstood. Here's our second point. You see, how does Paul describe these times that surround the arrival of our Lord? He says the unbeliever is going to be thinking everything is great. They're going to be going around saying peace and safety and security. And those who indulge in sin daily and in complete and total rebellion against our Lord will be interrupted abruptly. Abruptly. Much in the same way as those who rebelled against our Lord in the days of Noah. This is what we are told in Matthew chapter 24, verse 38. We read, For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And what did we see, brothers and sisters, in Genesis 6? Right? We have the, the godly line of Seth taking for themselves wives from the line of Cain, corrupting God's marriage ordinance, polluting this world, this earth. And so we read that the Lord sees man's wickedness and their heart is evil continually and He tells Noah, go build the ark, put your family in it because I've determined that all flesh will perish. And the flood rains came. And all those who corrupted their way on earth, engaging in sin and debauchery, perished in the flood. You see, they were so consumed in their ways, they were having such a good time in their ungodliness that they misunderstood the times. They misunderstood the times. And Jesus compares them to the present age. To the present age. Remember, there's only two ages. There's this age and the age to come. So Jesus is comparing them to the present age. That's whether that was a, a thousand years ago, today, or a thousand years from now. The present age. And we can think about that right now in our, in our own context here in America. How what Jesus has said seems to be very true even today. Right? Christianity more than ever seems to be attacked from the outside, isn't it? I mean, marriage has been redefined. Now, even today, we're hearing simple biology is being thrown out the window. What is male and female is being questioned. Abortion, more than ever, is being promoted. Even before, those who were pro-choice, those who were pro-abortion, it wasn't something that they were proud of. It was like a last result for most of them. But now, it's, it's like a flu shot. You just get one every year and you make sure you tell everyone about it. And what is it that we see day after day, commercial after commercial, TV show after TV show? We're being inundated with these new moral norms from society. And you know what? The godless are loving it. The godless love it. 
They say your religion is old and dated. Your beliefs are bigoted and hateful and your God does not exist. That is what they're saying. But guess what? There's just as, as Peter predicted it would be. Turn with me, please, to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second <clears throat> Peter chapter 3. Peter says this, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring you up, your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord one, for the Lord one day is a thousand years and a, a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, brothers and sisters, isn't this what we're seeing? Scoffers saying, where is the Lord? Where is His coming? Look, Christian, things are going our way nowadays. Society's changing for us. It's looking bad for you and it's looking real good for us. But see, brothers and sisters, they're unaware that for the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Not understanding our Lord and His kindness, and His grace, and His mercy towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, this world takes our Lord's kindness for weakness. They take His long-suffering as a sign that He will not return, but they misunderstand. They misunderstand the times. And what is their end? What results? Paul tells us in our text today, it's destruction. As we just read, Peter says, but the same heavens and earth that now existed are stored up with fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Destruction results. And so this leads us to our third and final point, which I will have to leave you in suspense to until next week. Next week we will look at point three, that the day of the Lord is final. And that's good because I want to take probably the whole time just to cover that one point as we'll look at what the day of the Lord is. Look at it from the Old Testament perspective, New Testament, what it has to do with judgment, what it has to do with believers. And so as we draw to a close, brothers and sisters, I hope that we have learned a few things that we can take with us. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of your time because these days are evil. 
You see, everything that we are taught, everything that we have been instructed through these holy men, moved by the Spirit, is given to us so that we might exercise ourselves in holiness. Right? That is the purpose. Right? The ungodly, they waste their time in self-indulgence and in self-centeredness. But if we are believers, we have been called to glorify our Father who is in heaven so long as we are here on earth. And so that calls for preparation, brothers and sisters. We must prepare ourselves for Christ's return. We must be pursuing holiness constantly. And that's whether you're the youngest Christian or the oldest. That is all of our calls. Sanctification. Yet we must also be discerning. We must understand and be aware that Christ's promise of His return will surely come to pass. And so as we await, let us continue to proclaim the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For this is the means God uses. He says, faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word proclaimed. And so God is patient, using His preached word today and throughout all the world to draw all the elect from the corners of the world to Himself. So please, brothers and sisters, bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the promises we have in the Gospel. We thank You that we know that that day when You reveal Yourself from Heaven, it will be a glorious day for the saints. And yet, Father, as we still sojourn this earth, as we are pilgrims, We pray, Father, that You would continue to conform us into the image of Your Son. That through the knowledge and teaching that we receive, that the Spirit would apply it to our hearts that we may live out the truthfulness of Your Word, that we may live out what Your will is for us in this life. We ask, Father, that You may grow us in sanctification all of our days. That our focus would be on that. Not on what day or time you may come, but rather that we may join together in unity proclaiming that we together as the saints know that it will surely come to pass and we await your arrival with joy. And so, Father, we come before you and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.